it's another glorious October day. Makes me sick. Sinfully delicious greetings to every single one of you. As always, thank you so much for stopping by, making Paranormal Prowlers podcast part of your day. Those tunes you just heard are, of course, courtesy of the lovely Bobby Mackey. And as always, I'm your host, Tessa Morrow. Old Montana Prison. It was built by convicts in the late 1800s. They thought things through when it came to the escape department. They had built massive gray sandstone walls that were 24 feet high and buried four feet deep into the cold earth. So no inmate, with a brain anyway, would even get the idea to dig and tunnel his way to freedom. That, of course, did not stop the riots from desperate inmates who had nothing to lose. Enter the riot of 1959. You see, riots were in inmate Jerry Miles' blood. He got off on them. He thrived on them. He was a psychopath, a hardened criminal. Jerry Miles was serving time at Alcatraz when the riot known as the Battle of Alcatraz took place. While he did not take part in this riot, he became a sponge, soaking in all the tips, the advice, the do's, the don'ts, notes, if you will. He watched like his life depended on it. He saw how his fellow inmates took control of the hardened Alcatraz, He also saw that it did not end well, that the perps were either caught, killed, with the last two remaining being executed. That did not seem to faze him in the slightest. He took part in a riot while at the federal pen in Atlanta. Jerry wanted out. He had wasted too much of his life behind bars, way more than half. Never mind the fact that he did some shitty stuff to get to where he was, but he didn't see it that way. He wanted his freedom and he was going to do anything to get it. Recently, Jerry had spent a hell of a lot of time in solitary confinement, what was better known as the hole. As he proved time and time again to be unruly, he was seething from his last stint in the hole. When back in the general population, he starts to come up with this plan. Unbeknownst to anyone, Jerry is paying extremely close attention to his surroundings. More specifically, the guards, their mannerisms, the walk, the talk, their routine, their habits. He recruits fellow inmates Lee Smart and George Alton. He basically promises them their freedom. They deserve it. They're good fellas. (laughs) bullshit the day has come picture it it's the 16th day of april the year 1959 it's 3 30 and a guard by the name of gus byers is doing his rounds jerry miles knew that he would be alone gus is on the catwalk of cell block one miles and smart are close by gus He turns around, as anyone would, hearing the sound of their name. Things escalate rather quickly at this point. As he turns around, he's surprised by gasoline being thrown at him. Well, this covers his face and it completely soaks his shirt and onto his chest. 
Lee Smart had tossed the gasoline on the unsuspecting guard, while Jerry Miles ignites the match to a mop, a makeshift torch. Great. Gus is in the fight for his life. Within seconds, he is suddenly surrounded by fire. He's terrified. Who can blame him? He sees no way out and he surrenders his keys and his rifle to the inmates. He is then put into the hole. As this is occurring, fellow inmates see their chance and they attack the two remaining guards with knives. They too are forced to surrender their keys and they are out in the hole with Gus. Cell Block 1 is now under inmate control. And besides the three guards who are stuck in the hole, no one else knows about this yet. That will soon change. Now, they know that ammunition is stored in cell block two, so they head over there. After a short standoff between an armed guard and a knife-wielding inmate, the guard suffers a knife slash to his hand and surrenders and, and joins his fellow guards in the hole. In just a short amount of time, the inmates have gained full control of cell blocks one and two, have two rifles, at least, and 17 rounds of ammo. As guards would approach, they would be threatened, ambushed, and overpowered, and guess what? Sent to the hole. As this is taking place, Warden Powell and Deputy Warden Roth are across the street, finishing a business meeting. Neither man has a single clue of what's taking place just a few feet away. Deputy Warden Roth walks across the street and starts to head into his office. Nearby, Miles, Smart, and a third inmate go to an area where the medication is kept. Poor Miles, you know, he has a headache. He needs something for that throbbing head of his. Can I please have some aspirin? Perhaps some Tylenol if you've got it? Well, as Deputy Cox turns around to go get the meds for the headache, that is Miles, literally... Like we've seen with the others, Cox is overpowered. Miles then bursts into Deputy Warden Roth's office and attempts to attack him with a cleaver. The quick-thinking Roth manages to grab a plywood letterbox and jam it between him and the deranged inmate. As Roth gets the upper hand, he grabs a chair and raises it in the air to strike Jerry with it. But what he does not see is that inmate Smart has entered the office. He is armed, and he shoots Deputy Warden Ted Roth, who sadly dies instantly. Up until that point, nobody had been hurt. Well, I have to say, Gus, with the gas on him, probably didn't feel very good, but no deaths. I mean, this this is absolutely horrible. So they ambush Officer Simonson. And instead of holding him hostage in the hole like the others, they force him to call Warden Powell. The terrified guard speaks into the phone. Someone's been knifed. The inmates are watching his every move, listening to every single word, and they make sure that the officer does not release any further information. When Powell steps foot into the prison, they are ready for him, and he is immediately apprehended. The warden is forced to call the governor who happens to be out of town and isn't coming back until much later in the evening. Warden Powell leaves a message. Call number eight as soon as you return. You see, the warden and the governor, they had a prearranged code. Number eight is a warning that, hey, the prison's under attack, the warden's been compromised, and to not return the call. 
The masterminds, Miles and Smart, get impatient, waiting on a phone call that may not come. So they leave the warden with inmate Walter Trochi. If the governor does not call by 8 p.m. on the damn dot, kill the warden. He is told. Well, this sucks because the warden knows that call is not going to come. Things cannot get any worse. The deputy warden's dead, murdered in cold blood. At least 20 men are in the hole being held hostage. And the warden's life is minutes away from possibly expiring. What can possibly happen next? Trochi is armed with a kitchen knife and eight o'clock is rapidly approaching. Tick tock, tick tock. Eight comes and guess what it goes and by golly the warden is still alive and breathing. Instead of murdering the warden like told to do, he surrenders his weapon and frees the warden who had offered amnesty. If any and all prisoners who want to retreat to minimum security can do so, Walter Trochi and five other inmates take the warden's offer and they escape the prison. Once outside and he's able to put the inmates who left with him somewhere safe, the warden jumps into action, makes some calls, and is able to control the riot from the safety of being outside. In the end, Jerry Miles murders his comrade, Lee Smart, and then takes his own life. They got what they want. They are now free from old Montana prison. Once the riot ended and control and order was restored, the inmates were all taken out of their cells and given cavity searches. Oh, cavity searches all around. Their cells were thoroughly searched. During this extensive search, 382 knives were found. That is a shitload of knives, along with two and a half ton truckloads worth of other contraband. Wow. I mean, at least all of that stuff was taken out. One riot, 36 hours. Three people dead. Now, two of them don't count as victims as they are the masterminds of the riot. The victim is poor Deputy Warden Ted Roth. The riot of 1959 was not the first to take place, but was the prison's longest and bloodiest riot to ever take place. Now, let's rewind back from 1959 to 97 years earlier. The year is 1862. A gold rush came flooding in, attracting all types of unsavory folks. Deer Lodge, Montana was sick and tired of having to deal with the heavy flow of crime that came with the newcomers. Theft, murders, and everything in between. In late 1866, the territorial legislature immediately request funds for a prison. And unlike what we saw with the Point Sir Lighthouse, the U.S. Congress are very quick to approve this. Well, unfortunately, building was delayed due to lack of funds, and construction finally started in the spring of 1870. And the first territorial prison in the western United States is constructed. July 2nd, 1871, the first inmates enter the prison. Not gonna lie, they had some pretty demented creeps in this joint, but what prison doesn't, right? Some of the well-known prisoners include George Harold Davis, a man who spent a night of drinking at the Silver Dollar Saloon and left without paying. Frustrated at the situation, he goes to his car, where he retrieves his forty-five, 
walks back to the bar, and shoots several times at a group of innocent bystanders. Several people get hurt, and one man is murdered. George is arrested and sentenced to 11 life terms, the longest prison sentence in the state of Montana's history. Another inmate is Paul Pete Eitner, known as Turkey Pete by fellow inmates and the guards. He was a German immigrant working as a poster at a Miles City saloon. Well, one day in early 1918, for reasons unknown, he picks up his 38 revolver, locks ever so calmly down the hall, and fires three times into a fellow lodger who dies three days later. He never gave a reason why he murdered this man. He only said that it was in self-defense, which he later recanted and did admit guilt. He's given a life sentence. Before he spent time at Old Montana Prison, he was at a sanitarium in Gallon, which he considered home. His job was to look after the turkeys, hence his name, Turkey Pete. He was a delusional guy. In his mind, he convinced himself that he was a millionaire and the owner of several diamond mines. He dies in 1967 at the age of 89 after serving 49 years in the state prison. After he dies, his cell number one is never reassigned. Turkey Pete is given a funeral in the prison. The only funeral to ever be held in the prison, believe it or not. In more recent times, William Galhan was serving a 130-year sentence for the murder of a woman. While serving that sentence, him and another inmate brutally murder their fellow inmate Gerald Pileggi, beating him to death with a baseball bat. Well, that lands him on Montana's death row, where he remains to this very day. Too bad that Montana hasn't executed anybody since 2006. When they executed David Dawson for murdering a family of three, he remains the last person to be executed in Montana's history. One of the most sickest individuals was probably Nathaniel Bar Jonah, the worst of predators, a fucking pedophile and a child killer and possibly a cannibal. So Nathaniel, he had issues his whole life. This guy was one sick dude. He proved at a very young age to be a vicious, conniving, scandalous predator. He's only seven years old when he lures a five-year-old neighbor girl into his basement. He entices her by saying that for his birthday, he got a Ouija board, which can predict the future. Don't you want your future told, little girl? Once in the basement, he begins to strangle her trying to rob her of any future. Luckily, his mother is upstairs and hears the young girl's desperate and panicked screams for help. And she's able to run downstairs and stop the brutal attack. At 12 years old, he sexually assaults a six-year-old boy who lived nearby. Later on, he tries to lure two children to a cemetery with the pure intentions on murdering them. Luckily, they get away. He is obsessed with attacking defenseless children. At one point, he saw a little boy in a car, his mother not too far away. He goes into the car and sits on top of the boy. He's probably like close to 300 pounds, and this little boy is this tiny little thing. The mom and other people were able to scare him away. When questioned by the police, he said, oh, I, uh, it was raining. I was trying to get out of the rain. 
This dude is totally sick. He would actually try to impersonate someone that children were raised to trust. An authoritative figure. A police officer. He will be able to attack several children successfully because of this. He is connected to the disappearance of a young boy named Zach Ramsey, who to this day has sadly never been found. And despite poor Zach's grieving mother pleading not to, Zach is declared dead by the court. He is also responsible for the murder of a young boy named James Teta. It's believed he is responsible for several other attacks, murders, and disappearances linked to children. He is thought to have been a cannibal as well, and I won't get into the, you know, details because, ugh, just reading it made my stomach hurt. Extremely disturbing. And thank God this asshole ends up dying in prison, in a cage like he deserved, in 2008. Now it is a shame that he couldn't be put to death. Now, during the years that old Montana prison was open, it executed two men. There's a plaque and marker that talks a little bit about that, and I'm going to read that now. Execution of George Rock. On this site in 1908, George Rock was executed by hanging. A year later, William Hayes met a similar fate. Rock and Hayes killed Deputy Warden John Robinson and severely wounded Warden Frank Conley in an escape attempt. Conley surprised the inmates after they had murdered Robinson and fired on them with his 41 caliber revolver. Both inmates were hit, but the ammunition was defective and Conley was obliged to subdue the murderous men by clubbing them with the revolver. As both Rock and Hayes were armed with knives, Conley suffered numerous knife wounds, which required 103 stitches. Rock and Hayes were executed by an unusual jerk-up scaffold, utilizing the drop of a 300-pound weight, which was supposed to break their necks. But the device failed to break their necks, and death was by strangulation. Rock and Hayes were the only inmates to ever be executed at this prison. So it's interesting because this happened in 1908, where the other riot that I was talking about was in 1959. But in both cases, the deputy warden is murdered and, you know, and the warden is basically held hostage and is hurt. Now, the upright jerker was used with the purpose to replace regular type hanging executions. Instead of the condemned man or woman to drop from a trap door on the gallows, they would be jerked up into the air with the sole purpose of breaking that neck and rapid death. Many cases like Rock and Hay's deaths would be slow suffocation, long and drawn out. This method was retired back in the 1930s. It's been long since believed that the old Montana prison, which is now a museum, is extremely haunted. Almost immediately after they opened it to the public as a museum, strange things start happening here. People have seen shadow figures, dashing blurs going by, full-bodied apparitions, strange mists, balls of light. They've smelled phantom smells of decay and other disgusting things. They've heard unexplained whispers, cries, and screams. Many have experienced the sense of dread, like they'll feel fine and all of a sudden boom, it just hits them out of nowhere. And they experience cold spots as well. 
Now, several paranormal teams have conducted investigations here. One team was in the middle of an investigation when they hear a terrifying scream of a woman. Another group of people communicated with the spirit of a woman who identified herself as Nancy. Solitary confinement is a super active location, which is really recommended to go to when you're investigating here. People have oftentimes heard unexplained whispers and, and some have been attacked by unseen forces being pushed and shoved and what have you. One of the resident spirits believed to call the prison home is none other than Turkey Pete. And why not? He was somewhat of a celebrity here. You know, prison's prison, but if you're loved and respected by the guards and the inmates, I mean, you know, why not stick around? So in his case, it kind of actually makes sense. For $149, you can stay the night here with exclusive access. If I'm ever in Deer Lodge, Montana, I will have to keep that in mind, as I'm always looking for new places to go to. Did you enjoy this week's episode? Yes! Listen to the others, you guys. They're equally awesome. Haven't heard every single one yet? No need to cry, my friends. You can listen right now by hitting up any of those podcast platforms, such as CastBox, Google Podcasts, Owl Tell, iHeartRadio, Spotify, wherever you may roam to listen to your other phantasmic podcast you'll probably find paranormal prowess podcast lurking in the background this week's special city shout outs go to lafayette louisiana paso robles california philadelphia pennsylvania northgate washington and vestby municipality norway Much love to every single one of you guys. Have an idea for an episode, something scary to share, want to be a voiceover for a future episode, throw a scary little recording my way for the Halloween episode, email me now at the new email, paraprowl at gmail.com. P-A-R-A-P-R-O-W-L at gmail.com. See you next week.